0: the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Getting a lesson from the Shadow Chancellor on how to balance the books is like getting a lesson from Dracula on how to look after a blood bank. Ed Balls.
1: A steady-as-she-goes budget. What kind of ship does he think he's on, the Titanic? They're <laughs> Celeste.
0: Welcome to EMQs from Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Welcome to EMQs, Ex-Minister's Questions. This is where Ed and I answer all the questions that you're sending in to us and uh, respond to your various emails. But I have to say I've had rather an exciting email this week, which is from one Rishi Sunak, and it says, DM from the PM. I think DM means direct message, although I'm not completely a Hang on a sec.
1: It can't be a DM if it's on email. Even I know that's Twitter. Right. Formerly known as Twitter, now as
0: X. Right. Okay. But anyway, this is an email. How can it be an email for the DM? Well, it says DM. Are you questioning our Prime Minister? No. <laughs> so he says, am I in your WhatsApp contacts? If not, you're missing out. But he is uh, actually in my WhatsApp contacts. But I thought I would why press Why is this. he then sending you a message to confirm that? Because he says no one else in Westminster is doing this, George. So why not get involved? And this is a WhatsApp channel that I've now joined. Oh, oh
1: this, this is George Osborne, member of the Conservative Party. No. Round Robin from Rishi Sunak pretends to be personal. Oh. In fact, it has gone to millions.
0: He says I'm one of his top supporters. Well, good. And then you go on his uh, channel, and there's a very lovely thing about Valentine's Day with his wife. And well, you can God respond with some emojis. But you That c- would be a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Probably wouldn't have put it on his WhatsApp channel. And then you, you can respond. You can reply to his various messages with emojis. I thought I'd try, you know, I mean, obviously I wouldn't want to, do this just as an experiment i thought i might try the aubergine emoji or the pile of shit emoji but it turns out <laughs> well, look, tell us what you really think <laughs> no no i mean i was just as an experiment it turns out you're restricted you can you can send a heart emoji you can send a thumbs up one a, can you send a clap- thumbs down no you can send, no you can send a clap- oh
1: my god it's a democracy
0: you can send a clapping hands one, you know, hands together. One, there's thanks. There is a crying one, which I think might be a foolish, <laughs> might be foolish to have left in. He there. thinks it's tears one of, of the laughter. Six. Anyway, so far, almost a thousand people, nine hundred and ninety-five have responded with some kind of reaction to his lovely picture. Doesn't that make you feel a little less special?
1: It well, was a thousand of you.
0: I, I don't thousand best friends. Yeah, I, but the top supporters of Rishi Sunak. Sorry. Anyway, so. I am in with the in crowd. Maybe he'd send us a question. We could try that. Although he does say um, you're only going to receive his messages. You can't respond to them because he doesn't want idle chatter.
1: Why not? I mean, what's wrong with idle chatter? It's what we do for a living. It's it's all we do anymore. Back in the old days when we used to be political leaders and we could send out WhatsApp. Well, we didn't know what one was, but we could have sent out a WhatsApp message to our supporters and now we just do idle chatter.
0: Yes. So let's get on with the idle chatter. (laughs) Okay. So we've had lots of questions. Please do keep sending them in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. And this came from our listener, Laura, and she asks this question. I listen to many political podcasts and yours is by far my favourite.
1: I bet she says that to all the
0: podcasters. <laughs> Thank you. my. Thank you. That's her saying. Thank you. My question came to me last week while you were discussing the next female leader of the Tory party. Given that the last three female PMs have all been Conservatives and that you said the next was also likely to be, this got me thinking, and after a little research, I learned that most female heads of states have been on the right of centre. And I'd like to know why you think this is. This is a really good question. So why Very have there been question. three Conservative Prime Ministers? Why is it if... Most female heads of state are conservative rather than on the left.
1: And it's not simply because there have been so many conservative leaders in the last few years that, you know.
0: Well, Margaret Thatcher was some time ago.
1: That's true. And there's been no Labour permanent female leader. So I, I do accept she's got a quite good point. What's your theory?
0: I have a theory. I, I'll tell you what conservatives think. And I, I guess I subscribe to this that there's something quite male about the left. I know this sounds odd because. Obviously, people on the left would say they're feminists and feminist action groups have been very important. And
1: think. how many women were there in David Cameron's cabinets?
0: Well, there were a few. Yeah, but I mean, like a handful. It was terrible. One. Anyway, Carol, your, your point. I think it's true that, the you know, the Labour movement has often been quite male-dominated because it was born out of the trade union movement and the industrial working classes. If you look back at the beginning of the 20th century, in fact, often the trade unions were against giving the vote to women because they thought it would dilute their power. And it was, in 1918, a coalition government involving the Conservatives that gave women the vote. And in the 1920s, it was a Conservative Prime Minister, Baldwin, who extended the female franchise to what was called the flapper vote to younger women. And so it is an odd feature of the left that it can be quite misogynist. It can be quite male in its culture. And I think it is definitely... a a strange feature of British politics that the Labour Party still feels a long way off having a female leader or indeed a a leader from an ethnic minority background.
1: Look, I don't have to accept misogyny to accept... Maybe that's too strong a word, but... The maleness. And, you know, if you think about the 1970s, two rising stars of their respective parties, Margaret Thatcher and Barbara Castle. Barbara Castle, you know, a great woman cabinet minister, but she didn't go on to be the leader of the Labour Party and faced a lot of male opposition in that period. I was trying to think what my counter-argument was. Here's my best, the best one I could come up with, which is that if you are any party, you have to show that you are strong on kind of defence and law and order and kind of standing up against um, the powerful and external forces. And if you are a woman leader, that is absolutely important. And in the Conservative tradition, the right of centre tradition, being strong on defence and being strong on law and order is, is very much part of the political DNA. And therefore, it's much more kind of normal, comfortable thing for a political leader to do if they are a woman to be able to be you know i think margaret thatcher found it easier to persuade people that she was tough on crime and law and order because she was a conservative maybe barbara castle would have found that a bigger challenge than margaret thatcher because she was from the the labor side and didn't have that political tradition in quite the same way honestly i'm not persuaded by that argument but i thought i would give it my best go fact it's not been great for left of centre parties around the world, whether it's America or Britain or France or Germany. And, you know, Mrs. Merkel was not a strong authoritarian leader, but she was a very effective German chancellor, at least until the latter of part of, of, and absolutely right of centre. Jacinda Ardern was a, a non hard authoritarian. Was the Prime Minister of New Zealand, <laughs> yeah. But she's an exception, isn't there? If you think Mm. of Golda Meir or Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher, all sort of tough, strong figures. Mm. I I do not have a compelling answer. I think Laura makes a very good point. And I think the only thing I would say is leftist centre parties are going to have to prove that the future is going to be different from the past. Mm.
0: If anyone's got any theories about this, it would be interesting to hear them. I Uh, bet
1: there's people who have written PhD theses on this. They must have done
0: Yes. I mean, Don't
1: I, I, send us your PhD thesis. Just send us a voice yeah. note. That will be fine. So
0: why, why are most female leaders conservatives? So the next question is from Martin Lamb.
1: Hi, this is Martin in Wandsworth. My question is, did the government and the Bank of England have advanced notice of GDP figures before they're released to the public? Well, in our day, I think in your time as well, we absolutely would have had 24 hours notice. The figures would have come the day before. Very tight circulation list. Very important it wasn't leaked, but it gave the government an opportunity to prepare its lines. And I think actually, importantly, if it was something, a figure which was going to drastically change what was going on, maybe needed immediate action. It gave the government time to prepare its response. And so the people in the statistical community were always desperate to drop pre-release and have it happen for ministers at the same time as everybody else. But we certainly resisted that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I assumed that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor knew about last week's GDP numbers 24 hours before the rest of us. Certainly, when I was Chancellor, I knew about the GDP numbers in advance. But I checked, and they don't. They hear about these numbers the same time as everyone else. They dropped pre-release? Pre-release. This, who pre-release, did that? This was basically a list of people who had privileged access. to By the way, these numbers are, can be very market sensitive, very you know. Right. If if you were in possession of them, you might be able to speculate on the stock exchange and the like. So a leak you know, was a massive. So idea. you know it's a very very sensitive and economically important piece of information, and it was very very restricted circulation inside the treasury when I was there. There were various attempts to say Chancellor would be better if you saw these numbers the same time as everyone else, and I would tell people to proline the F off if they (laughs) suggested that to me, because it gave me 24 hours to think about how we'd respond to something that was really material to how the government's economic message was going to be received. So who ditched it? I've done some digging around, and the kind of folk memory in government is that this ended under Boris Johnson. That's what they tell me. And I guess that's because it wasn't uh, the most um, watertight operation but when we spoke to the Institute for Government, we asked them, they actually said it ended in 2017, which is under the Theresa May Premiership, because there had been a series of leaks. And someone at the Department of Work and Pensions had been able to cease to six seven. And this was an excuse to cut off the access. But I have to say...
1: They were always looking for an excuse.
0: I could tell you, if I was Chancellor in 2017, definitely would not have happened. Quite right. So the answer, Martin, is the government do not get advance notice, but the Bank of England do oh. if... They're in the middle of making decisions on interest For rates. For the
1: reason I said, that it could materially affect the decision they're about to make. So
0: if they have a Monetary Policy Committee meeting underway and these figures come out on a Thursday, which is the same day as the MPC will make its decision once a month. So there are special circumstances when the Bank of England can see these numbers.
1: I have a, um, a story on this, which is that in the run up to the ninety seven election, even though the statistics have always been the Treasury responsibility. In the end, Gordon Brown made the Office of National Statistics arm's length independent from government, um, but not immediately. They we up to the ninety-seven election, for some reason, Jack Straw, who at the time was a, a Shadow Cabinet member, but he was also a member of the Royal Statistical Society, had persuaded John Smith, I think, when he was Labour leader, that responsibility for statistics should be with Jack Straw and the Home Office, I think it would have been, and not with Gordon Brown and the Treasury. And Jack Straw had all these meetings in the run-up to the 97 election when he assured them we were going to make them independent, drop pre-release, a revolution was about to happen, all the papers and the legislation were prepared. We arrived in government in 97. Terry Burns said to, to me, is this true that you are happy to hand over responsibility for statistics to the home office and make them independent i said absolutely no way at all the bank of england's enough and we want a day's pre-release so that was the end of it tony blair killed it jack straw uh, you know he didn't get his way I mean, he's probably an honorary life member of the Royal Statistical Society, but his reforming zeal was nipped empire, in the bud. Empire grabbing. Empire grabbing. As I he know. would have been seen in Whitehall. I've Jones. got to say, it was a very, very clever manoeuvre. Would have been at the last, surprisingly
0: minute, important. If at it the last switched. minute. Kaboom. Right, now our next question comes from someone who I think you know very well, Ed. And that I, is...
1: I do. It's the series director of Good Morning Britain, Stuart Earl. So every day when I'm presenting Good Morning Britain, for three hours, he sits in my right-hand ear on an earpiece. I mean, he's not literally in my ear. He's speaking into my ear with, you know, the count and all the gallery people. It's called Open Talkback. And he talks for three hours. But he is an avid listener, loves the podcast. And he said to me at the end of the show on Wednesday, I really want to ask a question. I said, well, in that case, you know, don't whisper it in my ear, Stuart. Send us a voice note. That's what he's done. Hi Ellen George, Stuart here, big fan of the podcast. My question for you is a bit of an next one and that is, where has the cash gone? We don't have enough money for the NHS and social care. Councils are going bankrupt. Students are saddled with huge amounts of debt just for going to university and that's just a couple of examples. So where has the cash gone? Is it the wealthy getting richer or does an ageing population mean there aren't enough working age people to create the wealth we need to pay for society? I would say there's three big things um, which explain this, Stuart. One is you've had two once-in-a-generation economic shocks, the financial crisis of 2007-08, and then the pandemic, both of which have pushed up the national debt to double the levels in the period before that. And the consequence is we are paying a much, much bigger proportion of our national budget on debt interest payments. And when interest rates are a bit higher as they are now, that takes up even more money. That is one thing. The second thing is you're completely right. An ageing population means much more expenditure on pensions, but also on the National Health Service, pressures on social care. And the third thing is, really starting from the financial crisis and over the following 16, 17 years, our economy has just grown much more slowly than it did in the past. And that means less tax revenue coming into the Exchequer. And those three things means that the public finance pressures on the British state are much greater. There's much less money around to spend on the other stuff like the NHS or the police or roads or whatever. And it may be that those pressures are going to get worse for two reasons. One, we've talked in our last podcast about defence and defence pressures. But also, it may be that rather than spending pressures, the next challenge is going to be tax. You know, what's going to happen with green cars if people are smoking less, is, is AI going to change the way in which people work and get paid? All those things could mean, you know, less tax revenue as well. So it's challenging running the public finances.
0: I've got a slightly different answer to Stuart. First of all, I don't think we're unique in feeling the squeeze on public spending. I think if you look at the history of British governments for 200 years, there have always been fierce rows about how to pay for things, what to spend money on. There were rows about you know, funding the Navy 200 years ago, rouse about introducing income tax 200 years ago. The history of the 20th century is about big rows about pay awards for nurses and back in the day, minors.
1: Historically, uh, it was about paying for wars.
0: Yeah, and wars. And so, so, you know, I I think it's, you know, like like, many families, there's just an endless debate about what can be afforded. And so I don't think that's particularly different. I I think the other thing that has changed, however, is the demographics. David Willits, the former Tory minister, is very interesting on this, and you know he points to the 1980s, where really the Thatcher government is rescued by two things. One is suddenly the arrival of North Sea oil, that creates a huge form of additional tax revenue for the Thatcher government, just when the country basically is bankrupt. And second, you get a demographic bulge as a lot of younger people enter the workforce in the 1980s. And they are paying taxes. And people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they don't tend to consume public services. You know, they don't often go to hospital. If they're in work, they're contributing to the exchequer. And all of that has gone into reverse. So we have a shrinking or have had a, not a rapidly expanding workforce. And we have got, as you were saying, a, a rapidly growing older population. And you just take one thing, take the health service. So Back in the 1980s, you know we were spending something like uh, as a share of national income four percent of GDP on health, and now we're spending ten percent so there has been a big increase in health spending in pension spending, and the like, and that just squeezes out you've got fewer taxpayers paying. Uh, their earnings and you've got more social spending and that squeezes all the other things that you'd like to spend money on.
1: And then on students we made a decision which Labour started and the Conservatives carried on that if you're going to expand higher education and people who go to university tend to earn more than people who don't go to university the fair way to finance that was not through all taxpayers paying but to ask people to make a contribution and I think personally I think that was the fair thing to do.
0: You know it was easier to give everyone free university tuition when it was one in 10 people going to university rather than almost half. Anyway, very good question. I can see you obviously have a very good morning with uh, Stuart saying these kinds of things into your ear while you're broadcasting.
1: It's not normally quite like that. Right. But just like on Good Morning Britain, we'll come back after the break when we'll hear from Nick Bowles, former Conservative Member of Parliament, who's got a good question for us about American politics. Stay with us. We'll be back shortly. (laughs)
0: Welcome back. Now it's time for a question from Nick Bowles, my former colleague in government and a a friend of mine. I know Nick's a big fan of this podcast because he will often send me messages after one of our episodes goes out telling us what we got right and got wrong.
1: Is he the guy who often texts you and says, I totally agree with Ed?
0: Well, he's definitely in the centre of British politics and left the Tory party, remember, and says he's going to vote Labour at the next election, doesn't he? Oh, right. OK, there we are. So There we go. Anyway, Nick is not asking us about British politics. This is what Nick is asking us. Hi, George. Hi, Ed. It's Nick Bowles here. What chance do you think Nikki Haley still has of being elected President of the United States? And if I can have a supplementary, what chance does anyone other than Donald Trump or Joe Biden have, of being elected president of the United States?
1: Well, I looked up the stats overnight on the, this is actually the Bet365 website. And the answer, based on the betting markets at the moment, is probability of being the next American president, Donald Trump, 46%, Joe Biden, 40%. That is 86%. It will be one or other of them. And then the other people in the list, according to this website, were Gavin Newsom, Governor of California, twelve percent. Kamala Harris, four percent. Robert Kennedy Jr., four percent. Nikki Haley, three percent. Peter Booty, Buti- I'm not sure. How to say, i never had. How do you say his name? Th- that one, yeah, one percent. Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, one percent. Goodness me, that can't be right. There we are, eighty-six percent.
0: Well, I, I agree very much with the betting markets. I think it's frankly a kind of wishful thinking from people who would like a younger candidate to be running for president that the Democrats are suddenly going to find someone other than Joe Biden. You know, there's a very complicated process of trying to establish who your candidate's going to be. And Joe Biden is currently winning the primaries in the Democrat Party, as long as he wants to be the candidate at the next election and is capable of being the candidate, he will be. And the same with Donald Trump, you know, who's crushed all the opposition. Specifically on Nikki Haley, I mean, for those who haven't followed it, you know, she's a former ambassador to the United Nations, former governor of South Carolina. You know, you Many people wouldn't agree with lots of her views, but she comes across, to my mind, as exactly the kind of centre-right conservative leader you'd want if you had a Republican president. And she's very strong, for example, on supporting Ukraine in this war, which Trump isn't. But she's being obliterated by Trump in the primaries at the moment. And I have to say, why is she sticking at it? Well, I've, I guess she hopes that something's going to turn up. And remember, there are all these indictments against Trump, and you know, he might be blocked from being on the ballot paper in key states like Colorado. I have to say that even if all that happens and Trump, for some reason, isn't a Republican candidate, I suspect, you know, Nikki Haley wouldn't be the alternative now because she's sort of wound up too many people by continuing to run against Trump, much to her credit. And, you know, and I and I kind of applaud her for doing so. And Trump has behaved outrageously. Did you see what he said like a week ago? He says, where's Mr. Haley? Like there was some, you know, several scandal going on. And it turns out he's like a soldier serving the US military abroad at the moment. And everyone, again, condemned Trump for it, but didn't seem to make the blindest bit of difference. Well, Nick, I
1: think you have to kind of think through what could happen now. It's very unlikely that either candidate is going to choose to stand down voluntarily or to be beaten in the primaries. So it could only happen if there is a managed convention in one of the two parties late. It could be... You should explain to me what a managed convention is. A managed convention convention would be that after the whole primary purpose, people turn up to vote at the convention and there's still a vote of the delegates to the conventions to to choose the candidate. And for some reason, you have to change from the person who has been supported all the way through the primaries. If Joe Biden believed that he couldn't beat Donald Trump and somebody else could... It's not impossible that he could be persuaded to stand aside. I think that feels very, very unlikely. However,
0: let's say that... And who would it be, Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom, this very telegenic governor of California? I think
1: it rather depends on who the Republican candidate is. Let's come back to that, because alternative scenario is that Donald Trump is, let's say he's convicted, convicted of the charges he's facing around the insurrection. He may be appealing. Does the Republican Party decide that their candidate is going
0: to be a convicted felon, which is clearly what Trump would want. Which he can be. Which he can be. Unlike in Britain, you can actually be the president of the United States and be in jail. But you, you could imagine
1: a scenario in which the convention decides they don't want that. If they choose somebody else, the thing you can guarantee is whoever they choose is markedly younger than either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Suddenly that completely puts the age issue... Back into the spotlight, and that is a scenario where you know it's not impossible. You end up with two candidates, neither of which who, who mm-hmm. are Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And who you choose depends hugely on who the other party you think is going to choose. Because you're then into a kind yeah. of a game of how things look and representation. And so, you know, it's not impossible. It's Nikki Haley. But if it's Nikki Haley, do the Democrats choose a man rather than a woman? I mean, maybe that's the world in which they do go for Kamala Harris rather than gavin newsom now i'm not a, an expert on the detail of how internal democrat politics would work but you have to get into these gavin complicate- newsom's
0: ex-wife is now with donald trump's son i think is
1: sorry i know that's not, not relevant to nick's question well, but i thought it was uh, it's either not relevant or deeply relevant in ways i fully haven't fully understood <laughs> but i mean it's sort of it's I mean, by the
0: way these conventions is are that a message just come I over you, to
1: you from rishi sunak on your whatsapp
0: i tell you um have you been to these conventions? They are. I've I, actually never been to. the Oh convention. my god, you're missing out. If you're a political junkie, I went to a couple of the Republican ones when George W. Bush was the president, and they are absolutely amazing events. They're so much bigger than British politics, and you know, you've seen so many movies of, you know, the great state of Texas nominates John F. Kennedy for the, the history of these events. Sort of weighs on them, but I'm afraid all of this is a bit fantasy politics because it's almost certainly going to be Trump v Biden.
1: The betting markets do say though there's a 14% chance. So it's a good question from Nick and it's worth gaming the, the, the possibilities. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Just a quick question on Labour's private school fees policy. Please don't read out my name because I'm going to sound like a total dickhead I've just had my third child. My other two go to private schools, and with two boys, we're already pre labour changes looking at a future of spending the guts of 90k a year after tax on school fees. A 20% increase in fees would be pretty devastating to us. We, like many school fee paying families, have been hit hard by mortgage hikes and already pay a disproportionate amount on income tax. I know, Crimea River. But my question is, how feasible is it for the state sector to absorb a proportion of would-be fee payers who can no longer afford the fees?
0: So this is a good question because I think there is a sizable group of people in the country who do pay school fees. And if Labour get in, they say they're going to put VAT on school fees. And the question here very specifically is, will that lead to a whole load of children who are currently being privately educated turning up at the doors of the local State schools, and are the state schools ready for those additional numbers? I suspect it's not actually going to happen. I think the kind of people like our anonymous questioner who make great personal sacrifices, they're not the wealthiest people but they're obviously wealthier than most in our country, but nevertheless make a lot of sacrifices to send their children to private schools, will make further sacrifices to go on sending their children to private schools. And remember, in places like London, that can be a quarter of the entire population are privately educated. So even if the national statistics are it's less than 10% in some parts of the country, it's very high. I think they'll go on making those sacrifices. I don't think you will get that big influx of kids to the state schools. I think it might open up the market a bit, because after all these are private schools where some schools come in offering much lower fees than the really expensive you know schools like like I went to St Paul's very expensive Winchester where Rishi Sunak went to and so on so you might get a new market of much lower school fees but um I think if you just sort of say oh these people are rich and we shouldn't care about them it's not a particularly decent approach however labor's got to get the money from somewhere and I think they found somewhere it's quite hard for the tories to attack politically
1: so the Institute of Fiscal Studies did a report on this um, very question, the second half of last year. And they said that the proportion of kids going to private schools, about 6 to 7%, has basically not changed over the last 20 years. But actually, over those last 20 years, there's been a big real terms rise in fees. It's actually a 55% real terms rise in fees since 2003. They estimate that Labour would, from a 15% net VAT, that is 20% VAT, but after all the other deductions which happen, like, for example, VAT being deductible on boarding fees, for example, you end up raising about £1.6 billion a year. And then the IFS say that they think that you would see about a 3 to 7% reduction in private school attendance. That's what they calculate, their best estimate, which would mean a cost to the state of extra school places of about 100 to £300 million pounds a year in extra school spending. So the net raise for Labour is about one point three to £1.5 billion. Pounds. I'll come, I know what you're about to ask me, but just before I do, mm. the large majority of parents carry on paying, but there are other reasons why it's harder for private schools, partly because, you know, there are quite big cost pressures, not least around teachers' pensions, which they have to absorb themselves. The state absorbs public sector teachers' pensions, but also... These days, a lot of parents are worrying about whether their kids are less likely to get into Oxford, Cambridge, other top universities if you go to a private school, switching over to the state school system in the sixth form for that. So it's not only this VAT pressure. But I mean, you know, I know what you could ask me. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did not do this.
0: And you were education, actually, you were in the Treasury as a minister. I mean, why did you not do it? Well,
1: I think, see, because Tony Blair. Became prime minister around the time there was a row about his kids going to the Oratory School. If you remember, uh, Harriet Harman's kids went there as well. You know, a faith school. It was it was non fee paying and formally not selective, but kind of selective, and they got that for free. And so the idea that Tony Blair could have rode out that row about his kids going to the Oratory and then charge VAT on the school fees of people who were paying when he wasn't. That would have been quite difficult from his point of view. I think Gordon Brown was pretty against increasing VAT on anything ever, and that included school fees. But I think both of them took the view that lots of parents whose kids didn't go to private schools would like their kids to go to private schools and would see this as a a tax on their aspiration, even if they weren't actually ever going to pay those private school fees. And therefore, they, they decided it wasn't worth the candle, as you say, in tighter circumstances, a billion, 1.3 billion pounds, not to be sniffed at. But at the time, Blair and Brown decided it wasn't worth the candle. I
0: don't know if you saw Rishi Sunak appearing for the uh, GB News audience last week. He said that he was being attacked by Keir Starmer because of the school he went to. He was the head boy of Winchester, the famous public school, public by which I mean private. Here's what Rishi said. Do you know, I get attacked by Keir Starmer because of where I went to school. And I said to him once, actually, I said, you're not really attacking me, you're attacking my parents. And you're attacking everybody like them that works hard to aspire for a better life for them and their family. I think that's wrong. I don't think it's British. And that's not the type of country that I'm going to build. And I thought, it's about the most British thing possible to attack you for where you went to school. The British obsession. With where you were educated, the British obsession with schools like Eton and Winchester is uh, one of our defining national characteristics. So look, I
1: would people say- are, look, people are obsessed because every time somebody from Eton becomes the prime minister in recent years, it's a catastrophe.
0: No, I would say only fifty percent of the time. Really? Okay.
1: And how did that referendum go?
0: <laughs> well, we 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 recommended that people vote to to remain, and. Uh, It's been a very interesting report, which we haven't got time to talk about. So you should have a prime minister from a school uh, where if they they
1: recommend something, then you listen to them rather than do the opposite. Just saying, finally, we've got a question from Penny.
0: Hi Ed and George, it's Penny Newman from Orpington. This is a question for George, really. I've always wondered about the photograph in the papers on the 17th of July 2016 when you had just been sacked and David had stood down. Both of your families went to a cafe in Notting Hill and were chatting outside together. I'm fascinated to know how you both look so relaxed after such a dramatic few days. Were you concerned for your futures? Thank you, Penny. We did indeed go for breakfast at the Lisboa Cafe, which is a Portuguese cafe, on the Goldbourne Road, the day after we stopped being Prime Minister and Chancellor and we sat outside. Has it closed or is it still open? It's still open and it's a a great place to go. It it wasn't the death knell. uh, No, no, no. Do they have
1: a plaque on the wall saying David Cameron and George Mm -hmm. Osborne had breakfast here the uh, the day after they lost the referendum? We were
0: photographed on the front page of the Metro the next day. It was from world leaders to ordinary geezers, which actually was not a bad <laughs> life. i tell you, uh, well, the truth is, you know, when, you, when you're out, it's pretty brutal. And, you know, I was living in Downing Street with my family. And when I was told by Theresa May that she didn't want me in the cabinet, I, I she, her office asked me to leave by the back door. I couldn't leave by the front door. I'd been given no advance notice, although I suspected something might be up. And we weren't able to return to Downing Street. In fact, my kids, thankfully, weren't in London at that moment. So it's pretty brutal. And then the and David Cameron also returned to his home in Notting Hill. Well, in fact, we both had to go and stay with people because both of our homes were being rented out. So I actually phoned up my mum and uh, said, I need to come and spend the night at home, mum. I've been fired as chancellor. And then the next day we thought, well, come on, let's just go and get a coffee. And you, you've been through this losing your seat as well. The most important thing is to try to understand it's a shock It's going to be a shock to the system, but to try and get yourself back into the kind of normal rhythm of life. And I'll give you what will sound like quite a grand thing to say, but hopefully it's not what I mean. I had police protection and I was offered that I could keep that police protection for many months ahead. And I said, no, no, I want it gone in the next few days because I'm not the chancellor anymore. And I shouldn't be going around in government cars and having police and pretending I am something that I'm not anymore. And the sooner I get used to that fact, the better. And so um, a nice cappuccino and a, uh, one of those um, custard buns at uh, Lisburg Cafe was a good good way to start.
1: Well, look, sympathetic as I am. I mean, you did at least keep your main job, your Member of Parliament job, until the time departure of your own choosing. You know, I lost mine immediately. And, uh, you know... It's kind of... What did you do the I next was more day? sudden death and you were more dignitas, would be um, <laughs> would be my, my kind of view of this. What did you do the next morning? We went into hiding because for exactly the reasons that you said, we were being followed, cameras were outside the houses. We have had friends of ours who were away from London where we wouldn't be found and we went there with the kids for a couple of days. And then you suddenly have to, to think about the rest of your life and, and what's going to happen. And actually, I think quite quickly... I mean, it was it was after years of working too hard, suddenly to be able to be at home and cook for the kids was great. I liked that part of it, but it was destabilising to begin with. And I started writing down things I kept thinking of, my reflections on that period and ended up writing a book based upon them. Loads and loads of letters. And at one point, a pack of letters which had been sent, including the American ambassador and the Archbishop of Canterbury, which had arrived in my old office, were sent to me, and they didn't arrive. And it turned out, because they hadn't put enough postage on, but for about a week... I never got them. And I remember actually at the time feeling like, look, it was like this big thing. You know, People had written to me and I couldn't read the letters. And that became a very small kind of focus of loss. And uh, it's a big deal. And but then we didn't have time to think when did through. you
0: start to think, maybe it was on that list even then, you know, the the way that the real therapy I need is to do a podcast with George Osborne. Do
1: you know, I didn't know what a podcast was, <laughs> let alone <but> I <laughs> might know, do <laughs> one with you. I, know that, I mean, it, it was 2017 was the first time we... Yeah. did anything proper together, which was the election, although we did do that press conference in the... the we did the...
0: Let, uh, the reason, by the way, we did the election coverage for ITV, which we'll be doing again, I uh, should I'm say. not sure that's public. Oh, right. Well, I think we've just announced it. <laughs> we just announced it. Anyway, okay. is uh, because I could not think of anywhere else to watch the election. You know, I'd, I'd always watched general election results in my own constituency, my uh, count at Macclesfield Leisure Centre, where the Tatton constituency count was. And I wasn't going to go to a Theresa May victory party because she was expected to win the election handsomely. So when uh, Tom Bradby said, Do you fancy doing the election commentary with their balls? I thought that is the best place to be.
1: And, and, and the rest is history. Hmm. although that's, that's a list, good title that's the for a podcast <laughs> that, that's the name of another podcast anyway it's a really really lovely question penny and the truth is it's hard and people smile and put on a brave face but when things happen unexpectedly and destabilizingly it takes time to adjust but i think in the end the kind of personality you want to have is one which thinks okay what's next and that's why we're here and that's why you've been listening to emqs on political currency and you know you can watch clips from the show on our socials and we love it when you send in your questions what's the email questions
0: at politicalcurrency.co.uk
1: brilliant so we shall be back on thursday
0: that's with our main episode of political currency goodbye see you soon thanks for listening to political currency this has been a persephonica production